Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med-ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. So today's episode is very special because we will be focusing on the very newly published pediatric brain death guidelines. These guidelines made their debut in the pages of Neurology this past October. These 2023 guidelines represent a crucial update, sharpening our approaches and comprehension of brain death in pediatric care. For today's purposes, we will be equating the terms brain death and death by neurological criteria as equivalent. Today, we have the privilege of hosting a leader in the field of pediatric neurocritical care, Dr. Matthew Kirshen. Dr. Kirshen is an assistant professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine, pediatrics, and neurology at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. A proud alumnus of the Brandeis University and Stanford, where he secured both his MD and PhD in neuroscience. Dr. Kirshen's journey includes a residency at Stanford, followed by a unique dual fellowship in neurology and pediatric critical care at CHOP. Notably, he's among the rare professionals dual boarded in both pediatric critical care medicine and neurology. Dr. Kirshen's tireless endeavors in pediatric neurocritical care, especially his work on multimodal neuromonitoring to detect and prevent brain injuries in critically ill children, have garnered significant attention. His expertise also extends to predicting recovery post-severe brain injuries. Pertinent to today's discussion, Dr. Kirshen has displayed a keen interest in the precise diagnosis of brain death and proudly stands as one of the authors of the new guidelines on the topic of pediatric and adult brain death, death by neurologic criteria. Dr. Kirshen, welcome to our Pick You Doc on Call podcast and congratulations on the launch of the most recent guidelines on brain death. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me to participate in your podcast. I'm excited for this discussion. By way of disclosures, I do have NIH funding, but it is unrelated to the determination of brain death. In true PQ Doc on Call fashion, let's start with a case presented by Rahul. A nine-year-old boy is closely monitored in the pediatric ICU 72 hours post-cardiac arrest following a traumatic brain injury incurred from a vehicular accident. During the accident, the patient experienced cardiac arrest and had a prolonged downtime. On initial examination, post-resuscitation, the child exhibited non-reactive dilated pupils, a complete lack of corneal and gag reflexes, and decerebrate posturing. He has not generated spontaneous breaths on the ventilator and has only received one dose of fentanyl greater than 48 hours ago. The MRI has confirmed significant diffuse cerebral edema secondary to hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy as well as other traumatic changes. Despite maximal neuroprotective interventions and post-cardiac arrest care, there has been no discernible neurological improvement. And again, we are 72 hours post the initial event. Additionally, the patient has developed diabetes insipidus requiring vasopressin infusion to keep sodiums less than 160. 
Given the severe initial neurological findings and lack of progress, the child is now progressing towards brain death. Dr. Kirshen, when do we declare a patient brain dead? So when we talk about brain death, brain death is defined as the permanent and irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. It typically occurs after catastrophic severe brain injury. In this case, that would be a combination of the traumatic brain injury and the hypoxic ischemic brain injury after the patient's cardiac arrest. After the initial neuroresuscitative efforts, then the patient is observed for a period of time in order to see whether they have any recovery of neurologic function. If after a sufficient amount of time to conclude that the patient has had no recovery of clinical neurologic function, at that point in time, the evaluation to see if the patient will meet criteria for brain death can begin. Let's go to the next section on who can perform brain death and death by neurological criteria evaluations. Dr. Kirshen, who can perform the brain death? So in pediatrics, brain death evaluations are performed by attending physicians that are appropriately credentialed at their hospital and have been trained and are competent in performing the brain death evaluation. Trainees are not permitted to perform the brain death evaluation independently, but can be directly observed by attending physicians. In some states and jurisdictions, advanced practice providers are permitted to perform brain death evaluations independently and may do so if they are appropriately trained and competent in the evaluation. If uh, you are practicing in a state where APPs are not permitted to perform the brain death evaluation independently, then APPs would fall under the same recommendations as trainees. Let's visit the next section on prerequisites for determination of brain death. Dr. Kirshen, why is it so important to identify the etiology of brain death? So that's a great question. The prerequisites are probably the most important component of the brain death evaluation. And the reason for that is because here we are going to go through a comprehensive list of prerequisites to make sure that there is nothing confounding the evaluation. We really want to minimize and hopefully eliminate the chance of a false positive brain death determination, meaning that a person is determined to be brain death, but in fact, they retain some brain function and are thus, in fact, alive. And so one of the first things that we need to do is we need to establish the etiology of brain death. We need to know what caused the brain injury. We need to know that that process is a process which can lead to brain death, and it is not a reversible process. If you don't know why the patient is encephalopathic and comatose, there may in fact be a reversible process that we need further diagnostic testing in order to elucidate. So the very first thing is we have to know what the cause of the brain injury is. There are many clinical mimics for brain death, and we need to make sure that we do not have one of those prior to proceeding with the evaluation. Dr. Kirshen, you bring up a really great point. And one of the key distinctions and delineations that are mentioned in the guidelines and in your various discussions is the observation period. Can you shed some light on the observation period clinicians should use prior to initiating brain death evaluation? The fundamental tenant behind the observation period is it needs to be a long enough period based on 
the patient's age and the pathophysiology of the underlying brain injury in order for the clinician to be 100% confident that that brain injury is permanent and irreversible. In the guidelines, we have provided some distinct observation periods for infants and children less than two years old. We recommend waiting at least 48 hours after their acute brain injury before proceeding with the evaluation. Infants and younger children need longer waiting periods often than older children, and that is because of their open fontanelle, their unfused sutures. They may not experience the same consequences of refractory increased ICP as older children with fused uh, crania. And in addition, uh, about two-thirds of kids uh, who progress to brain death have hypoxic ischemic brain injury from either cardiac arrest uh, or shock or respiratory failure without arrest. And we know that the brainstem in young infants in particular is more resistant to the hypoxic ischemic injury. So it is necessary to wait longer in younger children. In patients uh, two years old and greater, the guidelines call out that if they have had hypoxic ischemic brain injury in particular, that it is necessary to wait at least 24 hours. But the overall guiding principle is that that interval between brain injury and initiating the evaluation is by far the most important interval in the entire evaluation process. At the conclusion of that interval, you need to be confident that the brain injury is permanent and irreversible, and when in doubt, wait longer. Dr. Kirshen, I think one of the things that, uh, that is different from the previous guidelines is the core body temperature. So what is acceptable core body temperature of a patient prior to de- initiating uh, brain death evaluation? So with many of the confounders like temperature, we want to make sure that the brain is normothermic prior to proceeding with the evaluation. Hypothermia can suppress brain function and it can also reduce medication clearance. And so we need to make sure that the body is normal temperature. And the guidelines have recommended greater than, uh, greater than or equal to uh, 36 degrees centigrade. Now, the other thing that is important when talking about temperature, and this is true for all confounders, is that if your body temperature has been lower than 36 degrees, and in particular lower than 35.5, either because of environmental exposure or because of therapeutic hypothermia, not only is it important to wait until you are normothermic, but after you achieve normothermia, it is important to wait an additional period of time to make sure there is no recovery of brain function after your body and your brain have achieved that normal temperature. Typically, we recommend waiting 24 hours, although in some circumstances, especially if there's concerns about delayed drug clearance, it may be helpful to wait even longer. Dr. Kirshen, what about blood pressure management prior to initiating a brain death evaluation? Blood pressure management is very similar to temperature. Hypotension can suppress brain function, and so we want to make sure that the blood pressure is normal for age prior to proceeding with the brain death evaluation, and in pediatrics, that is greater than the fifth percentile for age. And again, similar with temperature, after your blood pressure has achieved that level, you want to make sure that you wait an additional period of time to make sure that there is no recovery of brain function after you have achieved a normal blood pressure for age. 
Dr. Kirshen, you bring up excellent points, and I think it really reinforces the importance of understanding the underlying etiology, making sure you have a adequate wait time before you begin the brain death evaluation, and also consider some of the physiological parameters, particularly temperature and blood pressure. Let's go ahead and pivot to the discussion of medications and metabolic derangements. These frequently come up when we talk about the delineation of brain death. Dr. Kirshen, what are the current recommendations to ensure that metabolic derangements, intoxication, and medications that depress the central nervous system are excluded, adequately corrected, or eliminated before evaluating patients for brain death? Thanks for that question, because this is really important, and this is an area where sometimes shortcuts are taken in the brain death evaluation, and we need to make sure that we meticulously go through all of the potential confounders in this section. We need to make sure that the patient is not intoxicated. That involves, when appropriate, sending toxicology screens and ensuring they're negative. If you suspect that the patient may be intoxicated, but the toxicology screen is unremarkable, sometimes you need to wait longer to ensure that any possible substance that the patient may be intoxicated with has adequate time to clear from their system. When talking about medications that can suppress brain function, it is important to wait at least five half-lives for all CNS-depressing medication to make sure that they are sufficiently cleared from the system. That time may need to be longer in patients who have renal or hepatic failure, patients who are obese, and we must take into account age-dependent metabolism because neonates metabolize some medications more quickly and other medications more slowly than older patients. In the tables that are associated with the guidelines, there's a table that goes through all commonly used CNS-depressing medications in the ICU and provides pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic information so that you can work with your pharmacist and observe the patient for an appropriate amount of time. One big change from the prior guideline has to deal with pentobarbital, which is sometimes used in the ICU for the treatment of status epilepticus or refractory increased intracranial pressure. In prior guidelines, ancillary testing could be used if the patient had pentobarbital in their system. In the 2023 guidelines, we have changed the recommendation such that the pentobarbital level now must be less than five or below the lower limit of detection for the particular laboratory that you use prior to proceeding with the brain death evaluation. Given the delayed clearance of pentobarbital, and we wanted to emphasize that brain death determination is a clinical diagnosis and that ancillary testing should only be reserved if the clinical evaluation cannot be completed in its entirety, that we want to encourage people that for any medication or any potential substance that may be depressing the CNS, that it is imperative that we wait a sufficient amount of time for that to be cleared out of the system before proceeding with the evaluation. To touch quickly on metabolic derangements, it is also important that metabolic derangements, to the extent uh, possible, be corrected. We have also included a table within the guidelines that includes uh, parameters for metabolic acid base and uh, endocrinological derangements that to the extent possible should be corrected prior to proceeding with the brain death evaluation. If for some reason those metabolic factors cannot be adequately corrected, for example, the patient has uremia 
and it is not clinically appropriate to place the patient on dialysis, then ancillary testing is permissible to be used in that context. Thank you so much, Dr. Kirshen, for really bringing these things up. And I think you bring up an excellent theme, and that is that when it comes to the brain death evaluation, it is not a singular effort. It's a team effort. You're going to be working with your pharmacist, you're also going to be taking in considerations for metabolic abnormalities, as well as what I want to really emphasize is the pentobarbital uh, discussion and how that has been directly addressed in this 2023 guideline. Let's switch gears to actually the performance of the brain death exam at the bedside. Dr. Kirshen, how many examinations do we need and what is the time interval between the exams? Consistent with the 2011 guidance, Two physicians are required to perform two independent neurologic examinations as part of the brain death evaluation process, and those two examinations must be separated by a minimum of 12 hours. In the prior guidelines, it was possible to shorten that interval with ancillary testing, again, reinforcing the clinical nature of the brain death evaluation. We have removed that possibility from the current guideline, and you may not use ancillary testing in order to shorten the 12-hour interval between the evaluations. Thanks so much for highlighting that, Dr. Kirshen. And I think that it really emphasizes the fact that we are really going back to the bedside when it comes to brain death evaluation. Now, as we highlight the brain death evaluation and particularly the exam, do you mind just shedding some light on the central components to this exam, please? So the central components of the examination are that the patient must be comatose, they must have brainstem areflexia, and they must have no spontaneous respiratory effort in the setting of an adequate challenge, which is hypercarbia and acidosis. Dr. Kirshen, we've talked a little bit about the central components of the brain death exam. Do you mind going into just a little bit more detail about the neuroanatomy and exam tie-ins? So the first thing we need to do is we need to ensure that the patient is unconscious and confirm that they have no response to auditory, visual, or tactile stimulation. As part of that, we want to make sure that we apply pressure both distally and proximally in each one of the four extremities and that we provide central stimulation either in the form of a supraorbital notch pressure, pressure on the temporomandibular joint, or a nasal tickle with cotton applicators inside of the nose, and we want to see no movement to any of those stimuli. It is possible that patients can have movements during the brain death evaluation, and it is imperative that the clinician differentiate spinal reflexes from non-spinal reflexes or cerebrally derived movements during the evaluation. If it is unclear whether a movement is cerebrally or spinally mediated, then it is important to pause the evaluation at that point in time and either seek additional opinion from a more experienced physician or continue with the evaluation. And if all aspects of the remainder of the evaluation are consistent with brain death, then an ancillary test can be used. After the assessment for unresponsiveness, each of the brain brainstem reflexes is meticulously tested. We test for pupillary, corneal, oculovestibular, and oculocephalics, cough, gag, and in infants less than six months, we check for the sucking and rooting reflexes. Let's now jump to apnea testing, which is the fundamental part of the first and the second test. Dr. Kirshen, how many apnea tests do we need? 
It is required that physicians complete two apnea tests, one apnea test after each of the neurologic examinations. Dr. Kirshen, this apnea test is something we want to really explore more. And so do you mind giving us the practical ways which we perform the apnea test? The apnea test is the highest risk procedure that we do as part of the brain death evaluation. We need to follow a systematic protocol for completing the apnea test uh, to ensure patient safety and to get reliable results. The first thing that you need to do before the apnea test is you need to ensure that the patient's PaCO2 and pH are within normal range on an arterial blood gas. It is important to have an invasive arterial line in place to monitor the patient's blood pressure and to send serial blood gases. And it's important to pre-oxygenate the patient with 100% FiO2 with the goal of getting the PaO2 greater than 200 prior to proceeding with the exam. So once your PaCO2 and pH are within goal range, the patient is pre-oxygenated, you have ensured that the patient is normothermic and has normal blood pressure on your arterial blood pressure tracing. After that, you remove the patient from the mechanical ventilator and you want to observe the patient to see whether they have any spontaneous respiratory effort as their CO2 rises and their pH falls. Now, in order to ensure safety during this time, we provide apneic oxygenation to prevent the patient from having desaturations. In pediatrics, apneic oxygenation is typically provided with a Mapleson circuit or a flow-inflating anesthesia bag with a PEEP valve uh, connected to the endotracheal tube or the tracheostomy. I typically set the PEEP equivalent to what the patient's PEEP was on the ventilator prior to being disconnected. For some patients, it may be appropriate to leave them on the ventilator but transition the ventilator into CPAP mode. If you do that, just be cautious that there is not a backup rate that is going to kick in after a few minutes. As the patient is receiving apneic oxygenation for safety, the patient's torso and abdomen are exposed so that they can be observed, both the chest and the belly, for any evidence of spontaneous respiratory effort. Given the rate the CO2 rises with apnea, I typically start checking blood gases around the eight-minute mark and then check them serially every two minutes after that, if you have the ability to do a bedside arterial blood gas measurement, those intermittent gases can be helpful. The apnea test is consistent with brain death. If you have no clinical evidence of spontaneous respiratory effort and on your arterial blood gas, your PaCO2 is greater than 60 and greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, more than your pre-apnea test CO2, and your pH is less than 7.3. As long as the patient is hemodynamically stable, you can continue observing the patient until they meet that criteria. If at any point in time the patient has hypoxemia, oxygen saturations less than 85%, they have hypotension that is unresponsive to fluid boluses and pressors, or they have an arrhythmia with hemodynamic instability. It is important to terminate the apnea test at that point in time and provide appropriate resuscitative measures. I will also note that it is good clinical practice once the apnea test is consistent with brain death and the patient is reconnected 
to the ventilator, it is appropriate to transiently increase their minute ventilation so that you are able to reestablish normal carbia prior to resuming their prior baseline ventilator settings. Thank you so much, Dr. Kirshen, for bringing these very important points up. And again, this theme is throughout this episode, and that is it's a team effort. You're going to be working with your bedside nurse, your respiratory therapist, as well as the whole team. And I think one really key point which you bring up is it's about setting the stage. And during the examination, during the evaluation, you want to pay attention to the subtleties in terms of assessing your patient, as well as the frequent blood gases, which we talked about as it relates to the apnea test itself. To bring it home, let's switch to the topic of ancillary tests. Dr. Kirshen, we say that brain death is a, a remains a clinical evaluation. Then what is the role of ancillary tests? So that's a really good question. As you appropriately stated, brain death is a clinical determination. And we should strive to complete that clinical evaluation whenever possible. However, sometimes due to the nature of the brain injuries that our patients have, it is not possible to complete the entire clinical evaluation. And if it is not possible to complete the entire clinical evaluation, ancillary testing can be used. Now, keep in mind that we call them ancillary tests, not confirmatory tests. If it was a confirmatory test, then everybody would get that test. It is an ancillary test. It is not a diagnostic test. The purpose of the ancillary test is to give us one more piece of data about the severity, the irreversibility, the permanence of the brain injury that we can put together with the rest of our clinical examination and apnea test that must, all the components that could have been completed, must have been completed, and they must have been consistent with brain death prior to proceeding with your ancillary test. So ancillary testing cannot be used in isolation. It can only be used in the context of a component of the clinical examination or the apnea test cannot be fully completed or there is concern about its interpretability. For example, if you have a movement and you do not know whether it's a cerebrally or a spinally mediated reflex, if you've got trauma to the head and neck, and for example, you've got orbital trauma and it is not physically possible to assess the pupillary reflex, or it is not possible to do the oculovestibular testing. In that context, you can use ancillary testing to supplement your exam. If for whatever reason the patient has severe ARDS and the clinical team at the bedside determine that it is not safe in order to perform the apnea test, or if the apnea test needs to be terminated early, then it is appropriate to use ancillary testing in that context. Some circumstances, again, when it is not appropriate to use ancillary testing and it is not appropriate to use ancillary testing in the context of high levels of sedating medications that may be in the patient system, and it is not appropriate to use ancillary testing to shorten the interval either between the injury and the initial evaluation or that 12-hour interval between the evaluations, and that is a change in guidance from 2011 to 2023. Dr. Kirshen, thanks so much for providing that high-level overview when it comes to ancillary tests. Do you mind shedding light a little bit on what are the accepted ancillary tests? So there are two accepted ancillary tests in pediatrics, the conventional four-vessel uh, cerebral angiography and the nuclear medicine cerebral blood flow study, or conventionally known as the cerebral blood flow study. In practice, 
Conventional angiograms are not routinely used in pediatrics. So the go-to test at most pediatric institutions is the nuclear medicine cerebral blood flow study. I will just mention one important thing to consider when you are doing that study is there are two types of uh, radionucleotide uh, tracers that can be used, lipophilic tracers and lipophobic tracers. Lipophobic tracers are not preferred. They stay within the vasculature. And so when you take a picture of the brain, you will get the equivalent of an angiogram and you will see tracer within the blood vessels until the point that the blood vessels enter the skull. If you use the preferred lipophilic tracer, the lipophilic tracer can cross the blood-brain barrier and actually goes into the brain tissue itself. And so when you image the brain with SPECT or planar imaging after giving a lipophilic tracer, you actually get two pieces of information. You get the angiographic information of the tracer within the blood vessels, but you can also comment on the lack of tracer within the brain tissue and say that there is not only no flow to the brain, but there is no perfusion within the brain. And if you use the lateral projections, you can see perfusion within the brain stem. And so that is why the guidelines recommend lipophilic over lipophobic tracers so that we can talk about cerebral blood flow and cerebral perfusion within the brain and the brain stem in particular. A deviation from prior guidelines is that we have removed EEG as a recommended ancillary test for all children. And that is because most of the time when you are pursuing ancillary testing, it is because you cannot fully assess the brainstem. EEG assesses cortical function, and it does not give you an assessment of brainstem function. And so we wanted to ensure that if you're going to use ancillary testing in the context of being not able to fully assess the brainstem, that we are using an ancillary test that gives us some information about perfusion to the brainstem when we can't assess its function clinically completely. This definitely sheds great light. And one point that I want to underscore here is that electrophysiology tests as ancillary tests to assist with the diagnosis of brain death are not recommended. Additionally, I will say that CT angiography and MR angiography are not recommended in the 2023 U.S. guidelines. They are used in Canada and some places in Europe. However, we felt that there was insufficient data, particularly in pediatrics, in order to recommend them in the United States. I will also mention that transcranial Doppler ultrasound is permitted in adults. It is not currently permitted in pediatrics, and that is because of lack of available data. Dr. Kirshen, that was excellent. So revisiting our case above, what do we tell the family? So that is a really important question, and I want to stress that in the domain of brain death, communication with the family is as important as meticulously following the medical procedures. The conversations about brain death occur very early on after the patient is admitted. I begin the early conversations we are resuscitating, we are doing everything we can in order to try to help the brain, to save the brain, to have some sort of recovery of brain function. And then over the ensuing days, I have become more concerned that we are not seeing brain function. And as that concern progresses, we have a discussion about what brain death is and what a brain death evaluation entails. When I talk to families, 
I tell them that we are going to go through a very meticulous and a very protocolized of assessing all brain function. And my goal in walking to the room is to try to find evidence of brain function. Our entire team's focus is to try to find some evidence of brain function. However, if we have completed this meticulous protocol and we do not find any evidence of brain function, then one of my colleagues is going to repeat the evaluation the following day. And if both of those evaluations show no evidence of brain function, then at that point in time, the child will be declared dead and we will allow the family some time to spend with their child after that declaration to do some memory making, religious services if appropriate, and then we will remove the breathing tube and after that, the child's heart will stop. I think this is very important and that is understanding the context of brain death and what we must do is set the stage, make sure that the family is involved as we have these very difficult and sensitive discussions as we're here not only for the patient, but for the family as well. And this, I think, provides a very important way of experience for the family, so to say, as this is uh, such a uh, heart-trenching journey for them in the loss and acceptance of their uh, family member passing. One of the things that I think can be very helpful to families in this context is I always encourage families to observe and even participate in the clinical evaluation for brain death. I think observing the rigorousness of the protocol, the intensity of the painful stimuli that we apply to the patient, the lack of any respiration when we disconnect the patient from the ventilator helps family understand the severity of the brain injury, the gravity of the situation, and the irreversibility and the permanence of the process that we are dealing with. Rahul, can you very briefly tell us uh, what was done for the above patient? Absolutely. So we really stuck to the new American Academy of Neurology consensus guidelines for brain death. We made sure we understood the underlying etiology, checked all the labs, and ensured that we did not have any sedatives, analgesics, or neuromuscular blockers on board while working very closely with our pharmacists. We ensured adequate temperature and blood pressure. We had attending physicians perform the clinical exams separated by 12 hours. Prior to the apnea tests for both examinations, we pre-oxygenated the patient with 100% FiO2 and a PEEP of 10, which matched the patient's ventilator PEEP. And we drew an initial blood gas to get a baseline. After our time of evaluation, after about 10 minutes, we did have a arterial blood gas during the apnea test that showed a pH less than 7.3, PCO2 greater than 60, and that was an increase greater than 20 from baseline. After the second apnea test, the patient was declared dead and adequate support as well as time of death was provided to the family. The family decided to donate organs of their child at this point and mechanical support was continued and the patient was handed over to our organ procurement team. I think throughout all of this, we did maintain a great communication with the family, even in this very sad and unfortunate circumstance. And we truly guided them through this journey of the initial insult, the overall 
complications, and also the brain death process. Dr. Christian, as we wrap up, can you comment a bit on the presence of diabetes insipidus in patients who are getting the brain death evaluation? Yeah, so that's an important thing to mention. So only about 40% of kids per the most recent literature develop diabetes insipidus after their catastrophic brain injury. And the 2023 guidelines, as well as prior guidelines, the World Brain Death Project, as well as other international guidelines, have said that presence of neuroendocrine function is not inconsistent with the whole brain standard of death that we use for the determination of brain death. This is partly because of the variable extracranial blood supply that you can get to the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And so to reinforce here, you can evaluate and declare somebody for brain death if they do not have diabetes insipidus. That's excellent, Dr. Kirshen. Very good discussion. So, uh, you know, one thing that frequently comes out is trust. So how do we improve the public's trust in brain death or death by neurologic criteria acceptance? And I ask this question because it appears to me that some families are hesitant to accept this diagnosis in the PQ in the recent times. It's a good question, and it's a really important issue because in the domain of death declaration, we must maintain public trust. And brain death can be a challenging concept for families to understand. On one hand, we are saying that their child is dead, yet they look up at the monitor and they see vital signs that are identical to prior to the evaluation. The child is still having bodily functions. They are still warm to the touch. The chest is still going up and down. And so there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance between sometimes what the medical team is saying, especially around a concept like death, and what the family is perceiving. And so it is important that we provide adequate education both to our medical community so that we can improve the way that we explain brain death to families and to the general public as well. It is important that we have transparency that families need to know what brain death is. They need to know what the protocols and the procedures are for brain death. I think observing the evaluation helps in those contexts. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is there are many ethical, religious, legal issues that are surround brain death determination. We need to be respectful of our families. Many of us in the ICU take care of families from non-Western cultures who may have different views of death than patients who subscribe to Western religions. We also need to know that brain death legislation varies to some degree state by state. And so people need to make sure that they are following the brain death protocol at their institution, which is compliant with the laws and regulations in their state. It would be great if we had uniform legislation across all states and there are ongoing efforts to those goals. It is also imperative, and I will just say this again, that in order to ensure integrity in this process, that physicians who are going to do brain death evaluations need to be appropriately trained, and that can happen either within their institution as part of a supervised uh, evaluation, 
There are several online and simulation-based courses that can supplement that evaluation. And given the gravity, the importance, and the irreversibility of this determination, declaration, and subsequent removal of somatic support, it is important that we do brain death evaluations and determinations 100% right 100% of the time. When in doubt, stop and ask for help. Please do not take shortcuts. Do not try to expedite the process. Wait the appropriate observation periods. Meticulously go through all of the prerequisites. Follow the protocols for the exam, for the apnea test. Only use ancillary testing when it is clinically appropriate. We need to make sure that we maintain the integrity of this process so that we have no false positive brain death determinations and all of our declarations are accurate 100% of the time. This concludes our episode on brain death, death by neurological criteria. We are grateful to Dr. Matthew Kirshen for his expertise and taking the time to be a guest on our podcast today. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you.